How do I know if my patient should be seen by palliative care? What if I'm not sure if they're ready or I'm not ready? What do I need to know when calling a palliative care consult so that I can get the best outcome for my patient and for myself? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Timeout. Welcome to Medical Timeout, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Chinlin Ching. And I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. Today we'll be discussing when and how to refer patients to palliative care. Which patients would benefit from our services? What are the barriers to consulting us? How do we overcome those barriers? And how should a consult be called and crafted um, so that it works as well as possible for the requester, for the consultant, and most of all, for the patient? So, Chen Lin, I'd like to tell you a story. I'm ready. So this is about um, a 67-year-old man who had colon cancer. When he was diagnosed, he had metastases to the liver and to both lungs. Um, He had surgery, he started chemotherapy, but He struggled with both in terms of side effects, and his cancer was also continuing to progress. Uh, He had pain, he had shortness of breath, he had a lot of fatigue. Over a six-month period shortly after diagnosis, he was hospitalized several times. He had a bowel obstruction, he had a DVT, um, he had pneumonia, he had acute kidney injury, um, and all of those were treated, and he was sent home and, and came back and forth to the hospital. During that last hospitalization when he had kidney failure, they, were, they told him that there was nothing more that they could do for him. Um, he was referred to hospice and he was sent home. So it often takes you know, a day or two for hospice to, to come and, and enroll somebody in the community setting. So the day after he went home from the hospital, he had an acute change in his mental status. He became really confused, was agitated, Um, The hospice team did happen to come the same day that that he started to have these symptoms. Um, And when they assessed him, they pretty quickly figured out that he was dying. He was actively dying. He probably had hours to maybe a few days to live. Um, And his family was stunned and distraught. They had no idea that this was coming. So, you know, Rashmi, we're both palliative care specialists. Um, We specialize in complex complex symptom management and helping people navigate these really, really hard, difficult transitions in life and death um, and decision making. I hear a story like this. We continue to hear stories like this all of the time. And I continue to wonder, why weren't we called sooner in this man's life? It is such a good question. Um, and, And if we can answer that question with this podcast, I think we'll be doing a really big service to a lot of people. I think the overarching answer is that people continue to equate palliative care with hospice and people continue to equate hospice with dying soon. And there's this stigma around it. Um, And as we've talked about in previous episodes, there is a big um, block in in our country, but in many societies about talking about death and dying. So if you think that palliative care is the same thing as hospice and hospice is about dying, you may not want palliative care because you're afraid that it means that you need to talk about death and dying, which you may not be ready to do. Sometimes patients and and also providers don't see the utility in getting a palliative care team involved. You know, there may be situations where luckily a patient has very few symptoms, and so 
there's just nothing um, that, that they feel like palliative care can do. Sometimes a patient doesn't really understand the course of, of his or her disease. Um, it might be because um, we haven't really been clear with them, you know? So we can feed into this um, by not discussing prognosis, not, you know, sometimes we're overly optimistic when we talk about prognosis for our patients. Um, so we sort of set the patients up not to want to accept us. And I think even now there are certainly patients but also providers who don't realize that palliative care can be offered concurrently with disease-directed or life-prolonging treatment. Um, sometimes providers can feel like if they refer to palliative care, they're going to lose a relationship that they have with a patient that somebody else is going to take over, which isn't true, of course. Um, and sometimes I think providers don't bring up palliative care or don't talk about these issues because it's just, it's time consuming. It's time consuming and it can be emotionally difficult and so it's just not something that they wanna spend the time on. Um, and it's unfortunate because all of these things that are barriers to people coming to us, you know, maybe needing symptom management or not having a good understanding of disease or needing to talk about the next steps, that's exactly what we do best. Exactly, so it sounds like the key to uh, increasing the use of palliative care is first and foremost understanding what we do um, and understanding what palliative care does, um, especially uh, that we get better outcomes the sooner we get involved in a case, right? So um, fortunately, there's so many resources out there, um, and we hope that this podcast can be one of those resources too. Yeah. And the thing is that patients want what we do. They may not know it, but they do. So the Kaiser Family Foundation published a survey in 2017 um, that focused on end-of-life medical care in the United States. And that survey showed that the majority of Americans prioritize pain and symptom management um, over prolonging their lives. Um, patients say that they want their providers to be completely honest with them about their prognosis. Um, patients say that they and their families should have the biggest say in their medical decision making. Um, and they feel strongly about making sure that their wishes are followed, that their wishes are clear, and that the medical team follows their wishes. And seven in 10 Americans say that they prefer to die at home. You know, I, I continue to think about walking into a room and, and just seeing fear in people's eyes. And what I often tell them is, just because we're creating a space right now together where we can talk about our fears and we're scared together and we cry together and we talk about death and dying doesn't mean it's going to happen now and doesn't mean that we're going to conjure up something that isn't going to happen but we're providing them an opportunity to um, emote and talk about those scary things so they can move on and continue to reframe what they can be hopeful for it's not about taking away hope it's not about sucking the air out of the room it's really about helping people reframe hope so that there is always something more to hope for. Right. Um, and that's really what we do. And talking about studies, we're going to bring up the Tremel uh, study one more time. Um, there's lots of evidence out there that early involvement of palliative care improves outcomes. Um, I, you know, We always joke if we could bottle up palliative care into a little pill, uh, we could be gazillionaires, mm -hmm. right? So 
this study showed that, um, and this was in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010, they had two arms. Um, patients with metastatic lung cancer would either uh, receive cancer-targeted therapy alone or t- cancer-targeted therapy with palliative care involvement. And the study showed that there was reduced symptom burden in the arm with palliative care, uh, decreased use of chemotherapy and cancer-targeted tar- therapy actually, decreased use of the intensive care unit, ventilators, procedures, lower rates of emergency room visits, um, an increased chance of dying at home, which you mentioned is what most people want to do when they think about their end of life. Um, And actually they live longer too. So again, if I could bottle this all up in a pill, we'd be pretty good. Right, right. So it makes sense that there are many medical, surgical, other societies, um, you know, representing gastroenterology, cardiology, oncology, neurology, thoracic surgery, you know, the list goes on and on, have been developing in the past decade and a half or so guidelines and policy statements that talk about um, palliative care referral, um, and some of them actually suggest triggers for palliative care referral. So I was hoping that we could spend some time today and talk about um, what some of those triggers are. So we won't refer to any specific guidelines in the podcast, but if anybody in the audience is interested, we can certainly refer you to some of those guidelines. You can just send us an email. So let's talk about some of those triggers for palliative care referral. So we won't talk about any of the specific guidelines that have been published, but if anybody in the audience is interested, we could certainly refer you to to those. Um, You can send us an email. We'll give you the email address at the end of the episode. Um, So we will share some disease-specific reasons for palliative care referral, and then we'll also share some general things across all illnesses for when a palliative care referral would make sense. So I'm going to start with the thing that people, I think, most associate with palliative care, and that is cancer. Some of the reasons that you might refer a patient to palliative care um, when they have cancer is that they have stage four disease, so they have um, disease that's, that's metastasized beyond the local region. Um, it may be because their disease has been progressing despite the fact that they've been getting appropriate treatment. Um, it could be that they've developed new brain metastases. Um, it could be if they develop a complication such as a bowel obstruction, which is associated with, with a lowered prognosis with a high risk of, of mortality. If we talk about something like heart disease or lung disease, then you know shortness of breath at rest um, is, is something that, that could trigger a palliative care consultation. Somebody who is frequently in and out of the hospital, particularly if they have an ICU admission, particularly if they need a ventilator or if they need non-invasive ventilation like BiPAP um, to help their respiratory symptoms. If we talk about liver disease, people who have refractory ascites, um, if, if we're talking about um, liver transplant. If somebody's not a candidate for liver transplant, then definitely a palliative care referral makes sense. But even in that transplant evaluation process, um, it might be worth considering involvement from our team uh, because there's a, there's a lot that surrounds transplant that ultimately may not be right for the patient and, and how he or she wants to live his life, uh, their life. So um, that could be a time to refer. Um, patients who have renal disease and are moving towards dialysis or are already receiving dialysis and have decided they don't want that intervention. People with dementia who have a FAST score of 7A or greater. So FAST stands for Functional Assessment Staging. Um, it, it progresses from 1 all the way down through 7A, B, C, D, E, and F. 
Um, and somebody who is FAST of 7A is somebody who um, you know, has really significant cognitive impairment. They pretty much need assistance with all of their instrumental activities of daily living, like shopping and money management and cooking and things like that. And they also need help with the vast majority of their activities of daily living, like bathing, dressing, grooming, feeding, all of those things. Um, they're incontinent, and they may have limited verbal ability. When patients are moving towards that stage, um, it makes sense for palliative care to get involved. Um, and in any neurologic disease, really, when people start to have trouble swallowing, when they start to have slurring of their speech or difficulty expressing themselves, um, when, they, um, when they start to have changes in their cognition, those would all be times for a referral to a palliative care uh, service. A anything that you would want to add? Well, I mean, you named a lot of really important clinical signs. Um, I think um, other things are just philosophical, right? I, I think that for a lot of medicine, we feel comfortable as providers um, when things are very black and white. But as palliative care providers, we live very comfortably in the gray. And the gray means uncertainty. So if there's any uncertainty about prognosis, if there's uncertainty about goals of care, um, if there's uncertainty about whether this family uh, understands what's happening or you know agree with providers and what we're, we're saying, um, if uh, patients and families are requesting an intervention that you as a provider feels may be medically futile, um, you know, that those are all very uncomfortable gray zones. Any conflicts in um, decisions between the medical team and the patient and his or her family, um, or at the end of the day, when patients and families request us. Um, it's rare because, again, not many people know palliative care, um, but every once in a while we will get calls saying, you know, this family asked for palliative care. We love it when we're asked, and we love to get involved when we are. Yeah. You know, and if we go back to some of the more general um, clinical considerations that might prompt a referral, these are things that can be across diseases, not, not specific to cancer or to lung disease or anything like that. As we've mentioned before, anybody who has really complex uh, pain management needs or complex symptom management needs, that's something that sits right in our, in our wheelhouse. Um, people who are in and out of the hospital, especially over the course of you know, six months, especially if it's for the same thing, you know, they're, they're going in for a CHF exacerbation again and again and again, and not really making a whole lot of headway in between hospitalizations. Um, somebody who is um, losing weight, so somebody who has a weight loss of more than about 10% over the course of six months, if their body mass index is less than 22. Um, somebody who has functional dependency, whether or not they have uh, dementia, if they need help with two different activities of daily living or more than two activities of daily living, like bathing and dressing and grooming, um, that might be somebody uh, whose, whose decline is starting to accelerate and could benefit from, from palliative care consultation. Um, somebody who needs significant care by other people. Um, and sometimes we talk about this surprise question. Um, and the surprise question, there, you know, there's different variations of it, but I think as regards to a palliative care conversation or a palliative care consultation, you know, ask yourself, would I be surprised if this patient has died within the next, say, 6, 12, 18 months? If your answer is no, I would not be surprised if they've died within that time period, then that might be time to really strongly consider a palliative care consult um, because there are probably all kinds of issues and decisions that will be coming up in that time period that, that our team could really be helpful with. 
so I mean, in a nutshell, <laughs> palliative care can be helpful for people who have progressing disease, worsening disease, I mean, overall decline in their condition, intractable symptoms that are really hard to control, um, and maybe questions about what the next best steps are in their care. So if we go back to our patient who we talked about at the beginning, you know, we can see where there were multiple points in his illness where our team's uh, efforts could have been useful. You know, at the point of diagnosis, since he already had metastatic disease, when he wasn't responding to chemotherapy, when he was in and out of the hospital. Um, and most of the points where our team could have been involved were well before anybody was talking about end-of-life care or hospice. And I you know, can't help wondering whether our team really could have made a difference um, to this, this man's and this family's experience of illness. You know, and you, and you talked about triggers, and I know that, you know, some hospitals have triggers for palliative care consults, some don't, but the reality is readmissions is a hot mm-hmm. button topic right now in hospitals. How do we decrease readmissions for patients? But that should be a trigger. If you have a patient who keeps coming into the emergency department, it means that they're really sick, yeah. right? They need to come into the hospital for help. And so if you have a patient who's been readmitted two, three, four times in the last two or three months, think of that as a trigger to mm-hmm. say, hey, maybe it's time to do a medical timeout That's right. and think about what's going on and make sure we're on, all on the same page and we're doing right by this patient. So, okay, you've convinced me. I'm a hospitalist. Woo. I love palliative care. Um, I'm going to call you. Let's talk a little bit about consult etiquette. What's the best way for me to reach a palliative care provider? What do I ask for? What do I say so that I can get the best outcome for myself and for my patient? So I think when you call a consult, whether it's to palliative care, whether it's to anybody, you need to know what you're looking for from that consultation. Um, And overall, there are like four broad categories that a consult request might fall into. It could be something that your consultant has unique skills and experience in. So in our case, that might be somebody who's got complex symptom management. Um, It might be prognostication in the context of their illness. It might be goals of care discussions, especially if if they're complex, if there are complicated family dynamics, if there are conflicts between what the team is thinking and what the family is thinking. Those are all things um, that, that we're skilled and comfortable in doing. The second bucket is that you might have a specific question. So for example, um, I have this patient who has um, you know, these chronic pain management needs. Is this somebody who, who would benefit from the addition of methadone, which is a pain medicine that most clinicians don't use on a regular basis? And so um, the specific question for us would be, how do we transition them to methadone? What's the dosing? What's the timing? All of those things. Um, so that would be one reason. Um, sometimes it's kind of obligatory. Again, depending on, on your own hospital's policies, there are, there are times when they say, you know, you've, you've got to call a pulmonary consult if your patient comes in with this. Um, so in some hospitals, there might be an obligation like, if you have a patient who has sickle cell disease, um, comes in and is considering ketamine therapy as part of their, their analgesic regimen, then palliative care has to be involved to help oversee the administration of, of that particular medication. Um, and frankly, sometimes you're just calling an SOS. Sometimes, you know, it's a patient who just has multimorbidity. The, the family situation is complex. Um, you're not sure what the therapeutic options are, or they're or they're limited. Um, and you wanna, you need somebody's help to just tie that all together, put it all out there for the family, um, and talk about what their what their choices are. That's really a goals of care consult. Um, but sometimes it's just it's 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 such a complex situation that it's hard to say 
this is a goals of care consult. So I think all of those, all of those are reasons that somebody might call um, a palliative care consult. So it's important to know not necessarily which bucket those fall into. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people you know, have, a, have a poster next to their desk, but, but it's important to know that you need to have a specific question of some kind. You have to have something that you want the consultant to help you with. And ask yourself then, you know, why am I calling them? So that's what's my question. And the other question is, why am I calling them now? Why didn't I call them three weeks ago? Why didn't I call them yesterday? Why am I not waiting until tomorrow or the next day? What happened over the past couple of days? Was there a clinical change that prompted the consult? Um, did the patient suddenly um, start asking about other options and about seeing palliative care? Um, was there family that came in from out of town um, who is now ready to have a discussion or, or who is looking to have a discussion because they're here physically? Honest answers to questions like these can help you to decide, number one, is a consult warrant, uh, warranted? And number two, what is the best timing for that consult? Because I, I remember that um, I had, a, I had an, an attending when I was in residency who talked about a consult being ripe. Um, and that means that the consult um, has a clear question um, and that it's a question that's ready to be answered today, tomorrow, in the next couple of days. So that's the time that you should consider calling a consult. And we're always happy to help our colleagues, right? Whether you're at Highland Hospital, uh, St. James, Jones Memorial, or anywhere. Um, consider, though, that palliative care is not always necessary. A again, our goal of this podcast is to teach primary palliative care to non-palliative care providers. Mm -hmm. So low-lying fruit, a first pass at code status conversations, taking a time out, um, these are all skills that hospitalists and non-specialists should be able to do on their own. Um, and so always okay to take a first pass yourself. Um, but if you feel overwhelmed and need additional help, those are times uh, to call. Um, the other times also is remember that there's lots of different d disciplines within the hospital that can help. If you have a patient who just, you don't know a discharge plan, and it sounds a little bit like goals of care. You know, they don't they don't know if they want to go home on hospice or they don't want to go to a nursing home or something. Lean on the social worker first. Um, social workers are amazing colleagues of ours who can find a lot of information about the social situation that can help more conversations. Um, so there's lots of other experts who are really good at some of the things that we do as well that um, that we can all lean on. So when you've decided that, yep, palliative care is the team that I need and today is the day, then there are a couple of things that you should be prepared to do when you make that, make that call or send that, that text. So be prepared to give a brief, not long, but a brief clinical summary of what's going on with the patient and, and know what the question is, as, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago. Know what you're asking your consultant to do. We can read the chart. We absolutely do read the chart. Um, but don't be surprised if we ask a few clarifying questions. You know, sometimes there are, um, you know, things that just happened that nobody has had a chance to document, or sometimes there are things um, that 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 everybody knows. The nurses are aware, and the care team is aware, and um, there might be challenges with the family, but nobody really wants to write these things down for multiple reasons. It's really helpful for us if we know that these 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 conversation challenges or these communication challenges exist because it helps us to figure out how we're going to approach. 
you know, remember, we, the, 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 the information that we need in palliative care, it's not, it's not blood work, it's not the echo results, it's not the troponins, it's not the x-ray. We are really dealing in interpersonal relationships. So if there's information that you can give us about those relationships that's not written in the chart, that makes our job a lot easier and helps us to do a much better job. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, we're not trying to be difficult when we ask these questions. We're just trying to be as helpful as we, as we possibly can. Right. It can certainly come across as being really intimidating when we're peppering you with lots of questions. When you call a consult, you just want a consult. But all of the answers are really useful. Um, so that's helpful to say as well. And um, let's talk specifically about um, the UR Medicine affiliates, because uh, this is the original purpose of this podcast. Thanks to everyone else if you're not within our system for listening. But for those within the UR Medicine um, uh, system, the way to get a hold of a consult um, for Highland Hospital Palliative Care is to go through the web paging system um, in intranet, um, the smart web system. You can search on-call Highland Hospital Palliative Care, and it will list the providers who are on-call that day. You can click on the name, send a text, a return number. That's how you get us. For outpatient referrals, um, you know, you can call our office 585-341-6776 um, and leave information there. So there's lots of different ways of getting a hold of us, um, specifically for those in the Southern Tier affiliates. And whether you're in our system or in another system, just like it's important for you to know how to get in touch with us, it's important for us to know how to get back in touch with you. So please, when you when you send a consult request, whether it's a page or whether it's a phone call or whatever, uh, give us clear, complete, and current information about how to get back to you and your team. Um, please give us both a first name and a last name and also a complete phone number, not just the extension. Um, it's important because sometimes questions will come up while we're going through the chart and, and preparing to see the patient or even after we see the patient. Um, so knowing how to contact you lets us ask you those questions, but more importantly, it lets us close the loop with you. Once we've seen the patient, once we have our recommendations, um, it's really important for us to be able to um, not only share those recommendations with the patient and family, but also with our colleagues um, who were the ones consulting us to, to be involved um, in the first place. So I want to wrap up with another story, if I may. Love stories. So that's, that's what we do. We deal in stories. So this is a 40-year-old woman. Um, she had recurrent ovarian cancer. Um, she had had um, a hysterectomy and a bilateral oophorectomy. Um, she had had chemotherapy, and she had had immunotherapy, um, and was you know, generally doing well, but her cancer had recurred, and she now had a new pleural effusion. So along with that, she had um, pretty severe pleuritic chest pain. She had a pretty severe cough, and she was referred to our palliative care team um, for management of those symptoms. So she ended up seeing us about you know, every six, eight weeks, every three months, something like that. Um, most of the time she was seeing us in, in the office. Um, she did have a couple of hospital admissions um, over the course of, of her time with us. And so when she was admitted to the hospital, we saw her in the hospital as well. Um, we helped to manage her, her pain, her cough. She developed nausea and fatigue you know, off and on over the course of her disease. And so we helped with that. Throughout all of these months that we saw her, inpatient, outpatient, we had multiple conversations about her goals of care, about her disease progression, about her treatment options. Um, she happened to be very thoughtful and introspective herself, and so she actually brought up conversations about end of life and about hospice, and so we were able to talk about these things with her as well. 
you know, throughout all this, she was living her life. She was working. She traveled to Hawaii with a cancer support group. She was, you know, doing all of the things that, that, that you would expect a, a young woman to want to do. Several months after we met her, she developed brain metastases. She had a course of whole brain radiation, and she started a new chemotherapy, which unfortunately she didn't do well with. She just didn't tolerate it very well. So she had um, a family meeting um, with our team, with uh, the oncology team, um, and at that, at that meeting, it was determined that there were no further cancer treatments that were going to help her reach her goals rather than harm her. Um, and so she elected to discontinue further disease-directed or life-prolonging treatment, um, transition to a plan that really focused only on her comfort and elected to enroll with home hospice. So she was on hospice at home. Um, symptoms were managed. The team was coming in and helping her understand what to expect. Um, several days after enrolling on hospice, she was watching a football game. Um, and after the game ended, she developed this acute delirium um, and pain. At home, she was started on haloperidol. She was started on some morphine um, in order to try to relieve her symptoms. Um, hospice continued to tell her family, you know, what should you do with the medications? What can you expect going forward? Ultimately, her symptoms became severe enough that she wasn't able to stay home, and so she came into the hospital and ended up getting IV medications to control her symptoms. Um, she was in the hospital for a few days, um, and on her birthday, um, she died in the hospital peacefully with her family at her side um, holding her hand, having flown in from, from wherever they lived so that they could be with her in these final days and weeks of her life. So it's so different from, you know, from the first patient we talked about at the beginning of this episode. And I think it really shows that there is always something more we can do. Um, we can work on optimizing symptom management and comfort. We can help the patient to understand the disease and what's to come. Um, and we can continue to promote the patient's um, dignity and peace. And uh, I think that's, that's a worthy goal. And so I think if there's a patient who may benefit from, from that, then I think that's a patient who would benefit from palliative care involvement. I love those stories and the contrast and the feelings involved in it. Not any less tragic, right? A 40-year-old woman, there's, I, I don't think there's anyone who would think that this was a ha happy ending, but it feels like it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what fills our cup, right, as palliative care Absolutely. providers, and that's why we keep doing what we do. Um, I'm going to pivot 180 degrees from that very touching story and get to the segment in our podcast where we talk about pet peeves um, and what drives us crazy. Um, and uh, so Rashmi, do you have any pet peeves or something that drives you crazy about a palliative care consult specifically? Um, for me, it is this idea of needing permission. There is nothing that drives me crazy more than seeing a colleague in the hallway, a hospitalist who says, oh, Chinlin, I have this patient who really needs you, um, but I don't think they're ready yet. Um, or I haven't called their daughter yet to get permission to call you. Um, and I challenge that colleague and I say, you know, if a patient comes in with rapid AFib, do you wait to call cardiology? Do you ask for permission to call cardiology first? You don't go to up to a surgeon and say, hey, Tom, I have this patient with a ruptured appendix in the ED, but they really need you, but I haven't asked permission yet. Um, there's only one specialty in medicine where you need permission to enter a room, and that's psych psychiatry. 
Um, the second you think that you need permission for palliative care to be involved in a case, it shows to me that you truly don't understand what we do. Um, and it already sets us back uh, on the wrong footing with the, with the family. Because if you feel like you have to ask permission, then the family's like, why do you need my permission to call these doctors? Uh, is something wrong? Are they weird somehow? Um, why, do you, why do I need to be okay with these people walking in? If you as a provider are not comfortable introducing me in a way that's not intimidating, then I'd rather introduce myself. In my 12 years of doing this, I've never been kicked out of a room. Very comfortable introducing what we do in a way that doesn't scare people because we read a room pretty well. So, end rant, that's my pet peeve. You don't need permission to call us, and I think once you understand the things that we do, um, I'm not going to kick in the door and be like, Oprah, you are on hospice, and you get hospice, and you get hospice. Um, we're actually quite thoughtful, um, and I hope other people think so, too. I mean, I'm not really sure how I'm going to uh, top that one, but <laughs> I, I do have a couple of things that drive me crazy about this consult process, too. One of them is when somebody calls and says, you know, we start asking a couple of questions about the patient, and they say, oh, I'm not sure. My attending asked me to call you. I recognize that. I recognize that it's you know that there are different people on the team, and so it's not always the person who who primarily wants the the consult who's making the call to us. Um, we just request that please you know take the time to review the chart yourself. Maybe talk to the patient briefly so that you have a sense of what's going on with the patient, um, because again that that allows you to provide us some of the information that we need to do our job most effectively. The other thing you know, and this is something that that you alluded to a little bit earlier when you talked about. Um, you know, first pass goals of care conversations and, and things like that. I feel like sometimes, you know, the, the, the team feels very strongly that a patient needs to have a DNR, needs to have a DNI, needs to be on hospice, something like that. And I feel like sometimes we're asked to go in and make that happen. Um, and the expectation is that we're, we're about to walk out of the room, you know, waving that pink most form, um, you know, in, in, in our area and in our state, saying, okay, they're DNR, DNI. We um, did our job. We did our job. That's what you asked us to do. And I think, you know, it, it may be that we walk into the room and say, whew, this, we agree with you. This patient really would, would, would benefit from being DNR, DNI because that's what would meet their goals the best. That's what would serve their values the best. Sometimes the patient doesn't want to make that change and set that limit. And so our job is not to go in and make the patient do the thing that the medical team thinks that they should do, even if we agree with it, our job is to find out what's important to the patient. What are their values? How do we honor that? Um, and I think that, as you said, when we are able to honor the patient's preferences, that's, that's what we go to work for. That's what's so fulfilling about what we do. Yes. Well, we hope that this was useful to you in your daily practice. So in the meantime, um, we would love to hear from you. Um, please send us questions or comments or suggestions for future topics. Um, if you would like some information about those guidelines that we talked about before or really links to any articles or anything like that, you can email us at medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. Did I get that right? Yes. Medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. Um, this podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. Thank you to Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to palliative care education. 
Thank you to Levi Ganji, who composed and created and produced the music for this podcast. Um, and a huge thanks to Nicholas Davis and Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing, and producing the podcast. And thanks to you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll talk about all things advanced directives and medical surrogate decision making. It's a big topic. It is. Have a great couple of weeks. Thank you.